just a quick disclaimer before we get into the episode. Um, this is not about the real men of Easy Company. This is about the show Band of Brothers. We are not disparaging the legacy and the campaigns of the actual men who fought in World War II. We are simply some friends who want to talk about Band of Brothers because it's our favorite show. And with that being said, enjoy the episode. So really quick before we get into this episode, yes, it is in fact another two-parter. Um, we just had so much fun with it that it went so long and we have so much so much to talk about that uh, we're splitting this up. So this is uh, part one of episode four, Replacements. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to episode four. We are... Moving right through the series, this one is Replacements. Joining me today, I have Laura. Hi. And I have Maria. Hello. Round two. Back at it. Um, (laughs) Back at it again. Back at it again with the Replacements. So, yeah. (laughs) So, that's... Jesus Christ. Two in a row. It's exciting. Two in a row. Yeah. This is, I think, the the first two in a row I got. It feels fun to be able to, like, literally pick up where we left off. Yeah, because we literally, yeah. Well, so yeah, so in the episode, we do pick up kind of... So at the end of it, Lipton announces that they have to leave England for good. Mm-hmm. But we learn at the beginning of this episode, via Bill Garnier, that that didn't actually happen. And so they are still just partying it up, having a good old time in England, um, spending time with the boys, because Patton overran the drop zone. (laughs) Apparently they did Um, that a few times. Patton Patton is a thorn in the airborne side, it seems. Every time. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't seem like he's uh, on the best term. With our band of boys here. Death from above? No, death from me. (laughs) (laughs) Death from Patton. Course of death, Patton. It was just... Instant. Instant kill. (laughs) Um, But I love, love that it opens in a bar. Like, I just think... Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Refreshing change of pace... To be yeah. hanging out um, and being swindled by one <laughs> by one Buck Compton. Is certain the uh, higher up there? I believe his name is Buck Compton. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Episode one, you say, "Don't take from these men." Episode four, give me your shit. <laughs> episode but, but four, I'm, I'm actually going to hustle you out of two packs of cigarettes. But what what I wonder is, was that, I had never considered that to be a hustle. That's a new one for me. I always assumed that Buck throwing with his left hand was like an attempt at honoring whatever promise he made to Dick. It's like, it's fine if I'm betting because I'm going to lose anyway. But it's so much more fun if him and Luz are in cahoots to steal baby. Yeah, I want to, I'm going to say... Cahoots. Luz, because Les gets a cut. Yeah. 
yeah. he does definitely definitely cahoots but like the, the look of betrayal on toy's face specifically yeah and the panic on babe's face the panic on babe heffron's face when he realizes what's going on yeah so um yeah to like sort of introduce the characters of this particular scene mm-hmm. the Good major call. players at least um we have this little group of guys we have uh, Buck Compton, George Luz, Joe Toy, uh, Bill Garnier, and Babe Heffron, who is a replacement, but because mm-hmm. of his, uh, I think one of you said in the last episode, it was an arbitrary city connection. He is now in with the main group. Yeah. He isn't like, he isn't like treated as a replacement because then you sort of pan over a little bit and you see his friends just sitting there, just all like, what's up? Really? We're here. Really looking like they just transferred him from another school. Like, it's tense in this really odd kind of way. Like, there's this kind of tension there where they're just sitting there almost at a salute. Like, at attention, it feels like. Yeah, they can't relax. Meanwhile, their buddy is just, like, having a sergeant give him a drink. Like, a sergeant who comes in and sips Miller's beer two minutes later. Yeah. Like, either no, he's drinking is, uh, Miller's beer, or there is a serious uh, disconnect in the scenes that you're watching, because Bill Garnier sits in front of an empty glass, and then picks up a glass and drinks from it, and I am convinced that he is drinking James Miller's beer just to be a dick. Yeah. So, we have... So, James Miller is one of the three replacements that actually gets treated like a replacement, He's mm-hmm. the one played by James McAvoy, which is how I know him. <laughs> um, and then you have Garcia, and the Tashi. third one is that? It's Hashi. Yeah. Hashi. And then, yeah, so he comes over and he explains the whole Patton overrunning the drop zone uh, debacle via Babe's uh, breakup story. Which, R.I.P. Poor kid, uh, didn't have the to risk Doris. getting old Doris again. I- yeah. which is also like <coughs> an odd, an odd moment because again, remember, like Babe has not known for a very long time. Like, what has it been? Like a month? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, probably a little bit more moment type thing which Bill immediately uses to humiliate him but it's a light-hearted humiliation yeah because he like he looks like he takes it fine yeah he's just a little a little red-faced yeah um but like that versus Cobb calling out Miller for wearing um the citation the citation when they didn't fight in Normandy. Um, so, like, Bill's lighthearted hazing, mm-hmm. and even maybe Buck's lighthearted hazing of stealing the kid's cigarettes by hustling him, versus Cobb straight up being like, You don't belong here. That's not yours. Yeah. I think is. An yeah. There's a very big, like, that power struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always like this scene because it feels very in an odd 
way it feels very slice of life kind of Mm -hmm. you have these guys they're all young guys they're hanging out in a bar drinking beer they're having a good time and they're kind of riffing on each other and there are these like bets like in this scene it's easy to forget that these that there's a war going on you know what i mean it really um it shows the hurry up and wait nature of it Mm -hmm. like really really well Especially in World yeah. War Two. Yeah, so I really like the scene. And I feel like to kind of connect with what you guys were saying about Garnier and Cobb, it's like you have these two opposites of... Whereas Bill is kind of good-naturedly hazed guys to kind of like, oh, show the guys and teach them how to pay respects. And this the gang works, essentially introducing them to the dynamics of the company like this is the way we treat each other this is the way we do like treat each other he basically gives like there's this concept called a comment sandwich which is like if you want to give someone negative critique you always start it off with a slice of bread which is giving them a compliment telling them something good about themselves saying that they're doing a good job and then you put in the criticism and then you finish on a positive note and essentially, that's what Bill comes in and does. Like, he comes in and he's like, yeah, you're good guys. You're hanging out, whatever. We're having fun. And then um, Bill and Martin, like, tag in with the, these mean remarks towards them. And then he finishes up on, like, this guy is going to keep you alive, you know? You listen to, to Randall Nunn. You do what he tells you. And kind of reasserts them as you have a place in this gang. I always found that interesting. Because then you do have Cobb, who is someone who fucking didn't even jump into Normandy, and he's like, take that off. That isn't yours. Mm -hmm. Um, And Bull reminding him of that, I think... In front of everybody. Yeah, in public. It's a call-out moment, for sure. Yeah, but also it shows how protective he is of his, his, like, new guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're not any better than these guys. None of us are any better than these guys. They're here to fight just like the rest of us. Like, we all have to keep all of us alive. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's just, it's such a nice moment, mostly because I love Bull Randleman. Like, I just, (laughs) his cigar-smoking, adorable, blonde nature, his Arkansas accent i just like everything about him i just we have found a weak spot in oh my god we, we totally have like i just want to give man a hug. Man. um but also he is like the epitome of the nco yes right like in the very beginning when they're going through the interviews hashi comes out and says like um that, you know, the the higher-ups were, we had some good leaders, but we had great NCOs. You could always count on your NCOs. And, like, then the very first scene that you come to is, like, Bull sticking up for his guys, like, as their NCO. I just mm-hmm. really just like that. And especially, like, stick, yeah, sticking up for his guys against his other boys like again sticking up for for new kids against his friends in like this 
kind of heartfelt moment. Well, I mean, I, I, I would venture, I, friend, gonna, Cobb's a brother, <laughs> but you don't have to be friends with your brother. Yeah, no, I meant, I meant earlier than that, when he's standing <laughs> with Bill and, and Johnny Martin, and they're like, kind of riffing on, oh. on the replacement, and he's like, it don't take much to set my guys off, where he's like, trying to include them in the, this, mm-hmm. I'm over analyzing the hell out of this moment, but... <laughs> It always it always struck me as nice because what I see there is like a person doing his best to kind of find little ins for these guys into the gang. Like he's yeah. trying to figure out little ways to get them involved with the other and people. And that's like that that is sort of like obviously the nature of the episode. Like we are sort of introduced to the concept of the replacement and how they have to make their way and find their spot in the company. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, sort of dealing with the reality of what they're doing and it is a very um, similar experience to the second well not the second but like the first into the second episode where like they were supposed to have a jump and mm-hmm. it got postponed and they were supposed to have their first jump and it got put off Mm-hmm. So it's a very similar, like, I think, experience of that sort of crash after the adrenaline of when you think you're leaving, but you're not. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so they can really help the boys through that. Yeah. And I was thinking, especially on the note that um, episode three had where they were like, I think it was episode three where they were like, um, those of us who had seen combat before tried not to think about it. Those of us who hadn't probably could think of little else. That's um, eight, actually. Is that episode eight? Yeah. Okay. Well, I just went way ahead. <laughs> I, but I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, because you kind of see that at um, at the end of this episode, or or at the end of the scene where Lipton says it's time to jump, and you see the guys who have seen combat before. Like, I think it's Muck who just kind of downs his beer and he was like, well, Back to we work. got a party fast now because this is about to end. And then you cut to, I think it's Miller again, who's just kind of staring out into space because this is the first time yeah. he'll be dropping into combat. Yeah. The the scene um with, uh, with Lipton being introduced by Smokey. Yeah. <laughs> right after the night of the bayonet. I feel Smokey so Fun Ruiner. Smokey Smokey Fun Ruiner Gordon. It's it's not a good look. Last time it was a poem, this time it was straight up Lipton's got good news for us guys. And then Lipton's like Yeah. Uh, well Well about that. <laughs> My news actually kind of suck. Sorry. So they're informed they're going to jump, and this time it does not get called off. No, they this it, time it it's can't. Real. And they have a they have a briefing where they sort of learn that the entire reason for this jump is to try to get into Germany quicker to mm-hmm. get home by Christmas this sort of infamous line yeah <laughs> the infamous hope of easy company that 
we're gonna be home by Christmas. We're gonna be finished by Christmas. Um, there be like there's gonna be a time after the war, and it's gonna be soon, like a couple of months away. I do love their uh, their sort of annoyance that it's gonna be under English command. <laughs> yeah, they absolutely want the credit for this. Because they're like, they don't want to be listening to no Brits. <laughs> um, I don't want to be It is really funny because he's like, this isn't our, this isn't our plan. Uh, we just got to do what the English tell you. And they're all just like, uh. But it's really funny because half the cast is British. And so they had to like roll their eyes at their own kind. Yeah, we suck. <laughs> God, I hate, I hate Ooh, those Englishmen or whatever they're called. What's it called? A, a, a Brit? A Tommy? I don't know what that yank. is. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Yeah, I'm an American man in the 1940s. <laughs> do you know? Do you know what would have been fun? What would be fun is if someone took like um, because during the briefing of Market Garden, we get all of these shots of Easy Company soldiers as they're getting briefed. It would be fun to do a head count on how many of them are actually American and how many of them are not. Like, like the, the actors. actors, yeah. It'd be fun um, to, to figure out if Tom Hanks, like, exclusively shows Americans in that shot or something. No, he doesn't. He does a good old, a good old uh, close-up of James McAvoy, so that debunks that right away. Yeah. I'm true. That's true. Also, McAvoy's, I mean, we, we've talked accents a couple of times um, on this show. James McAvoy has an accent, and it's not the best one I have he ever does. heard. He like, does. He does. Tries, but... Well, it's similar to um, how I feel about Michael Fassbender, mm -hmm. where, you know, he was in it, they showed his face a lot, but they didn't let him speak a lot. <laughs> They're like, you're pretty, yeah. but no shh. Sh sh. They were like, James, you look very innocent. You have the whole big blue doe-eyed thing going on. What are you famous for? You've done this weird show where you screwed a girl in a washing machine. Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll have you play a guy who gets killed with after like seven minutes of screen time. That's fun. That, are they, uh, okay. And I know that's probably like the point. Mm -hmm. But this show has the propensity to introduce you to a character, get you comfortable with this character, get you rooting for this character, and mm -hmm. then they die. And just yeah. Dead. Yep. And I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's the nature of war, I guess. Yeah. And, and the nature it's, of uh, HBO. The nature of HBO is emotional manipulation. <laughs> Got your number. We know what you're doing. We will be writing an essay. We will contact New York Times. Someone give me an email. You will be receiving it from my personal Gmail because that's how strongly I feel about this. We will kick up a fuss about a show made 19 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or I guess it was either, made years ago. It was uh, it's like either give us the deleted scenes, and I'm going back to this, give us the deleted scenes, or I'm going to write all the emotional grievances I have with the show. We will contact APA and we will blackmail you if you do not give us 
the deleted material. I will write chronicles. <laughs> Start a muckraking blog about HBO War. <laughs> the corruption behind it. The emotional manipulation. <laughs> This is also like, I'm not even talking specifically at Tom Hanks. I'm just talking to the world at this point. I'm just I like, know. This, these are my demands. These are my demands towards humanity. But anyway. Anyway, so we leave so, the bar. We leave the bar and we are at the airfield. And everyone is expecting this to be sort of an easy jump. They're not yeah. expecting opposition, just old men and kids. Yes, so I have actually some thoughts about the line it's, it'll be mostly kids and old men. Because if we're going into the politics of World War II, this is actually a pretty fair um, what's the word? It's not an unreasonable assumption to make that they're actually going to be up against quite a lot of old men and children. Because by late 1944, the Volkssturm had started. Volkssturm? I don't know how to pronounce things in German. But basically the people's storm, which means that anyone between the ages of 16 and 60 were drafted into the uh, German army. And I think this lines up with that. Um, because there were kids as young, I mean, according to American testimony, there were kids as young as eight fighting for Hitler at that point, especially Hitler youth. Yeah. Um, like there's this testimony from this guy called Heinz Schutz, uh, when he was 15, he was given half a day of training and then sent to the Soviet lines. Half a day? half a day and then he was sent to Russia um, and there are a lot of testimonies as well I think this is a recurring theme within these this episode and the next episode of like the kind of odd swept under the rug role that children played in this war because there are a couple of moments where we're kind of faced with this idea of kids in the war. Like when the Americans say it'll be mostly old people and kids, I don't think they realize that when they say kids, we're talking actual children here. Yeah. I think the, um, the assumption of what that means is like, it's just like Dutch citizens who are German. I, they're not like part of the German army. And like, that's like sort of like what I've personally always visualized when that line is spoken. Um, I never really consider that it's like the men of fighting and occupancy age. Yeah. I mean, Hitler youth got started in the early thirties. I think by 1936, they had about 5 million uh, members and by 1940, they had about 8 million. By that time, it was obligatory, but just to kind of put that into perspective, um, they had 8 million members in Hitler Jugend, which was essentially war camp for kids, um, where they were taught how to be good soldiers because Hitler expected the Third Reich to last for a thousand years. And that means you have to kind of prep the future generations and he expected there to be a lot of war because he had the whole you know we need to fight the international jew idea going on um 
So we have 8 million Hitlerjugend kids, and then the entire population of Holland in 1940 was 8.8 .8 million. So that kind of puts things into perspective of how huge the German war machine really, really was, and why when things got desperate, you start to see all of these actual child soldiers, because basically they just kept lowering and lowering and lowering the age required in order to be drafted into the military. Like, they started at 16, but eventually they kind of just said, like, by late 1945, they kind of just said, like, all the kids in Hitlerjugend have to go into the army. There was especially one battalion of SS soldiers, specifically, who were between the ages of 16 and 17. Like, they were called the... I have this written down somewhere. They were called the SS Youth Division. 3% of them were over the age of 25, and two-thirds of them were under, under the age of 18. I think that what always struck me about this is um, the assumption that children and old men, like, aren't going to put up any sort of resistance mm -hmm. or that, that yeah that those are the most ornery people I've ever met yeah <laughs> like the fact that it comes up twice for for Dick and Nixon that like kids right and like kids being unreliable like even when they go to Eindhoven and they meet you know the child resistance people and dick is like these are kids like what is it with this assumption that young people are useless well i Which think is, it's by the way, a very american assumption I think. well i think it is especially like with the mentality of the paratroopers it's like we are the best we are the most qualified we have the most training mm -hmm. these are essentially amateurs but again old men and young boys are the most ordinary people on the planet. <laughs> yeah. Like, you you can't win against them. Yeah, they're, they're gonna go until, especially if they were raised in a regime that literally brainwashed them, or helped build said regime. Yeah. Um, and I also think, like, for me, that also kind of said something about how, by comparison, how incredibly sheltered much of the American public had been from what a war actually looks like. Because I think after the war of like 1812 or something like that, there hasn't been like a major war happening on American soil. Well, Civil War. Yeah. Was that after 1812? Yeah, that was in the 1860s. <laughs> Sorry, I am not an American. <laughs> Since the Civil War, there had but. <laughs> When they're in the um, when they're in Holland, they're they're kind of having this discussion of like, yeah, this has been going on for five years. We've been waiting for this for a while, um, mm -hmm. and especially the British who were like, yeah, we want this war to be over by Christmas. By that time, the Brits had been fighting in the war actively for a couple of years already, um, whereas these guys have only been here for like a few months. Like so the, the Americans did just like sort of roll up at the end of the european war yeah and the war would not have been won without them let that be said i have all the respect for it but i feel like these scenes kind of pinpoint like yeah this has been going on for a while like it's 1944 
you have a kid, if you were like five when the war broke out, yeah, by the time you're 10, you're going to be pretty fucking sick of the Nazis, you know? And especially because no one expects you to be a part of the resistance, they're prime material. That's why children are such a valuable resource in war. Well, I don't, uh, I don't think that maybe the, uh, that Americans were necessarily sheltered to war because, again, as like a generalization, we had been fighting in the Pacific since early 1942. So mm-hmm. we had been at war already. Yeah, mm-hmm. not European. Yeah, like the European war, like that's like when they, we were like needed in Europe, like um, mm-hmm. in the Pacific, it said like the Nazis aren't going to be our job till they can't whip them without us. But like we were fighting our own, our own side of it. Yeah. Yeah, because the, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the reason that the US even entered Europe was mostly political, I think. Like, mm-hmm. as unpolitical as war ever gets, but it was mostly because Hitler was pals with Japan, and Japan mm-hmm. had attacked America. Yeah. And it was also to, like, reinforce the Allies. Yeah. Um, but it was a political thing, but we had we had been at war, so it wasn't like a, a shelter, a sheltering of sorts. Yeah, what I was referring to was mostly like the fact that these guys show up and they're like, why are there kids in your resistance movement? Like, yeah, because we've been at war for five years. Yeah, like, well, they've that's been the occupied. reason. They'd been like fully occupied for five years, right? Like the Germans yeah. rolled into Holland in what, like 1939? Yeah, they felt mm-hmm. pretty quickly. Um, which is also like one of the reasons that the Dutch, Dutch resistance was so widespread. I mean, we get a taste of it in this episode, but the Dutch resistance was really one of the biggest ones in Europe. I'm thinking the Polish resistance might have been a bit more organized, but the Dutch resistance was so widespread that they actually have different like levels of classification on how much you were resisting. In order, like, they have a qualification on how much you had to have been resisting in order to be able to call yourself a resistance member. Because just, like, telling the Nazis to fuck off and not obliging by their rules and not paying attention to them and, um, like, reading, printing, and spreading legal newspapers and anti-propaganda wasn't counted as acts of resistance because it was too common. That was just acts of illegality towards the Nazis. I love that. Illegality versus re- resistance. Um, yeah. Oh, but before we go to Holland, I know. Yeah, we're not even there yet. No, we're just like. Um, because we were chatting about Market Garden, and before they go, we absolutely have to touch upon Sobel's return. Mm hmm. Um, I love the way that, like, they all like sort of just look at him. Yeah. It's like this stare down and like the replacements are like, huh? Like what like what like what's the matter? And just yeah. like bulls like matter of factness, like he got promoted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like he was promoted. But um and like just Because Sobel is so kind of hated, right, it, for, for lack of a better term, by, like, the entirety of Easy Company. And then Popeye comes in and is like, yeah, so he picked me up um, 
and told me I was lucky that I wasn't going to have to jump. And I said, you know, that I wanted to go anyways. And he said, hop in. And everyone's like, I'm sorry, Sobel? Like, like, yeah, same guy. Sobel who, who gigged us for things like our pants, um, is suddenly allowing you to go AWOL. Like Mm -hmm. I, I just kind of love that scene. Yeah. I don't know. So it's like, I'm fine with you breaking the rules if you're doing it in order to be a better soldier in my company. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not his company anymore. (laughs) Ooh, that is a tough pill to swallow. Yeah, I mean, but it's sort of, you know, I wouldn't call it a redemption. Sobel doesn't get redeemed in this show, but it is sort of like... That is seeming like seemingly a moment of olive branch extension, mm-hmm. or just sure. add on to the complexity of a character. I feel, yeah. Like we talked about this when you asked us <laughs> our introductory questions last episode, which our favorite characters were, and I said Sobel, and you, you all did. wanted to boot me off the podcast. Um, but this <laughs> is kind of one of the reasons because he feels like. A, a real human being like he feels like that kind of enigma that you would encounter in your real life yeah yeah um i guess um even when when he like walks up to malarkey which is maybe one of my favorite scenes when skip is standing there all of a sudden he's like oh this uh this map i really need to go look at this map i'm just gonna walk away um <laughs> And then Sobel comes over and is like, malarkey. And then he looks at his uniform and he goes, oh, Sergeant Malarkey. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you get that motorcycle? (laughs) Like, what, you thought I wasn't going to find out? But, like, there's a moment where he almost, like, smiles and is almost, like, I want to say proud. That, like, oh, Sergeant Malarkey. Like, congratulations on that. But also stop stealing the Army's shit. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe stops being such a dick, you know? Yeah. Um, because, again, like, that was a pretty serious thing to be doing. Like, he stole... Like, this wasn't like, oh, I stole a can of peaches. Like, no, he stole a fucking motorcycle. Like, mm-hmm. that's some... that That's a bit more severe, I think. But you know what? Uh, I support it. And so does Dick. <laughs> Support stealing from the U.S. Army. <laughs> I do. I support stealing from the Army. <laughs> and so did Lieutenant Winters. Like, you, you, know, you know, I've... You, you know, if... Them for it. Everybody knew who did it. True. You know, if the Marines are okay with breaking into boxes and stealing all the Army shit, <laughs> let them. Right. Let just let Malaki have a motorbike. He deserves it. He does. He, he does. does deserve a motorcycle more than most people. But yeah. um, you then know, they. Have... I was gonna say. I was gonna say they get. They're all getting ready to jump, and it's mm-hmm. a really sweet scene. And you see, like the older, not the older, but like the guys that have done it already, like really helping mm-hmm. the replacements through it. Yeah, we have uh, Cobb kind of showing off. Like, again, we have the difference between 
um, a guy who's trying to help someone learn and grow and become a better soldier, and a guy who's kind of there to show off his own, like, levels of cool. Because you have yeah. uh, Garcia, he unsheaths his gun, right? And Miller walks over to him and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, no, yeah. Because Cobb's doing it, and Cobb's like, watch and learn, kids, or whatever. He says some douchey line. He, like, shakes it out of the case, and he's like, you want to <laughs> survive, jump ready to fight. Cobb, you Shut didn't jump up. the plane last time. It circled back so, to with you in it. Though, yeah. to be fair, Cobb had jumped. He had. He had. So Cobb kind of knew. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but then you have Bull coming over again, and he's like, "Let me check on your equipment. Let me just make sure that you're all set." And to like, and he pop, like pop, pop, says pop. this thing so speedily. Yeah, I can't even like say it. <laughs> I, I, I can't even quote what he was he was saying. It's like oh, when it's like, a... if you strap it up and down, when you land, it's gonna hit your knee, and the business end is gonna crack your jaw. So instead. Yeah. Uh, wrap it around your waist, get rid of your reserve, we're jumping too low, you're not gonna need it. Which, by the way, basically means if your chute doesn't open, you are dead, because we are too close to the ground. Yeah, Which, you're like, not gonna- you imagine being a replacement and someone being like, oh no, don't bother with your reserve chute, because if your original chute goes out, it's not gonna matter, you're dead anyways. You're not like, gonna have the time to, to pull yeah. the on, on yeah. the, the other chutes. Yeah, get rid of your reserve. Nobody needs it. We're jumping too low. And take the belly band and wrap it around your waist. Like, yeah. <laughs> that is a lot to take in on your first. Especially, like, and he just, like, he just, like, speeds through it. And Garcia's just, like, looking at him with these puppy dog eyes. Yeah. Especially because they must have, like, known, like, the paratroopers were a brand new concept. The... Mm-hmm. the Jump on D-Day was the first time that this had happened in combat in that way. So you kind of have, and like Garcia must know this. So he has to be looking up at Bull like, who is this man who has, like, what has happened to you guys in the last couple of months to make you so jaded already? Yeah. Like what, uh, like what have you seen and am I going to see it too? Yeah thinking about combat because you can't not it's uh it's something and something that sort of occurs it's a similar thing to a relationship that occurs i want to say in episode nine between uh percante and o'keefe yeah yeah but like they see the difference is they don't see any combat but they do see some bad shit yeah yeah. yeah, like, you have these guys who, throughout the course of the show, just get more and more and more jaded and more and more and more rubbed raw. And yeah. I really like the concept of, like, dramaturgically, I really like the concept of the replacement coming in because it's essentially fresh blood to the viewer's eyes, kind of telling us how far these guys have gotten. Because back in Tokoa, they were like that. Like, they mm-hmm. were those guys who didn't know what they were getting themselves into. We have seen them not be able to jump out of a training airplane. Yeah. Yeah. And now they're, uh... They're old pros, basically. Um, but it is a very... <sighs> dichotomous 
uh, scene. And I think it is interesting how both of these instances of how replacements are treated happen between Bull and Cobb. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very uh, interesting sort of polarity, I guess. Yeah, because like, yeah, I haven't thought about it, but now that you mention it, Randleman and Cobb are kind of on opposite sides of the spectrum in every way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you have Bull who's this like, <laughs> not, not to use that term, but he's a very much like an alpha male kind of guy. Like there's a scene where they're playing basketball in one of the episodes and he's just like a head taller than all the other guys. Like he's such a fucking unit of a human being. But he has this kind of cool confidence about him. Like he knows that he's a good soldier and he's here to do some good soldiering. And that's kind of it. Like, he doesn't have the need, um, it seems like, to build himself up in that way. Mm-hmm. And then you have Cobb, who does not seem to be such a great soldier. Um, I can't remember if it was last episode that we touched on this, but Cobb spent, what, nine years as a private? Just never yeah. getting promoted. I was not the first one to bring that up, but... Just sort of being shitty. <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, the inferiority complex in that character is very, very, very strong. Yeah. Um, he's also, I think, used as a... Like, um, there is a literary term for it, like a person who's used as, like, a mirror to show... A like, foil? A foil. He like Cobb is used as a foil to portray the like relationships between other people. Like mm-hmm. in this episode, he is an asshole to the new guys, and Bull kind of stands up for them. And then like in episode eight, he is a foil for like Webster being kind of allowed back into the group because Johnny sticks up for him against Cobb. Like he. Mm-hmm. Kind of, poor guy, like, I kind of feel bad because maybe he wasn't an asshole and maybe he was, but, like, his character is the foil in this show of, like, other people's relationship building. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think, um, I, I, I read something somewhere about Cobb that apparently, like, the way that he was portrayed in this show, apart, like, uh, as opposed to how he was in real life, apparently there, there's been some tension going on there with the real people because the real people really liked him. Like, for example, Webster describes him as like a guy you always got along with or something like that, which doesn't very much like yeah. get along with the idea of Cobb basically telling him to go fuck himself later. Well, I think that is one of the things... And one of the risks you run of dramatizing the lives of real people mm-hmm. is you're you're gonna have is because it is a dramatization and it's not like this always in real life, but in a sort of narrative, people wanna see definitive good, definitive bad, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. And for he is as bad as you can get for someone you're still trying to portray as somewhat of a hero. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they do it by way of his personality. Yeah. Because if we're talking, exactly, because if we're talking like you're trying to set up like a dramatic arc of a show or even just a single episode, you got- you're gonna need to have some tension there and the tension can't just come from the Germans. Like the tension can't only be about we can die in combat because that becomes kind of one-dimensional after a while. So you have to have these characters who become kind of villainized in order to tell a broader story, Um, which is fine when you're doing it on, like, fictional characters, but when you have real people who kind of get affected by that, it becomes difficult. And even if it is, like, even if it is like a true portrayal to real life, as for example, the character of Sobel, which has been described by many of the veterans as being kinder than the real guy was. Like the real guy was apparently worse, according to some of them. Like that has still had some very real life consequences for him and his family. Like I think especially his children were very, very, very upset at the way that their dad was portrayed because they did not agree with that. And basically called it slander. Um, but then, like, where do you draw the line between what is a fictional character in a show and what is a semi-dramatized, like, a dramatization of a semi-realistic document? Because even the original book that this show was based on was not exactly 100% true to real life all the time either. Um. And also, it's um, the issue you run into when characters become amalgamations, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That some of the stories that some of the characters did aren't actually what that person did. It's actually what a different person did, but they couldn't fit everyone into the story with all of their different pieces. So, like, people became kind of amalgamations of, like, a lot of different things that happened. Yeah. Um, like, for instance, like Toy not actually being the person who decked a German with uh, brass knuckles on D-Day, like that's actually not his story, but it became like a toy story. Oh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> it, you know, no, and so like someone, like you said, like has to portray that amalgamation of like not every guy in Easy was nice and funny and you know this typical kind of hero personality like a bull or a garnier or you know whoever like some of them were dicks and apparently the character that gets to portray that like amalgamation of all of that and all of those like negative feelings just happened to be Cobb. yeah yeah and then they picked a uh, an actor to play Cobb who has an absolutely perfect sneering resting bitch face. <laughs> he is yeah. I, I wish I could remember his name. I feel absolutely terrible that I cannot. I can glue uh, it up real fast. But um, he really played the asshole well and he has the sort of face for it and I think all of those things really came together in that character. <laughs> Craig Heaney. Craig, Craig. Craig Heaney, we applaud your commitment to the bit of yeah. uh, villainized hero. Not even <laughs> anti-hero. 
yeah, just a villainized guy. Yeah. He plays that very, very well. It takes a good actor to play someone who you just legitimately do not like. It does. It takes, you really have to uh, be good at what you do to understand the, uh, the connotations of how this is going to be perceived. Mm-hmm. And really accept those consequences. Yeah. So. Yeah. So finally, yes. uh, we get to jump. We get to jump. And they jump into a field, and it's this oddly sentimental kind of jump. Like the music it is a is, very beautiful is very dramatic. sequence. It's a. Be- it looks like dandelions. It does. Mm. You know. Um, yeah. But again, like in real life, it wasn't just them jumping. Like there's also um, in the book they talk about the fact that all of the the glider planes as well like there was an entire troop of glider planes and like there was a lot of other people coming out of the sky that day yeah. <laughs> other our guys um but they decided not to include it because the cgi budget was already terrible for that one scene mm-hmm. <sighs> to like make the guys fall out of the sky well yeah I'm thinking about the CGI of this whole show. And, you know, okay. they did... They did, did I just, the... like, open a Pandora's box right there? No, I don't think you opened a box. I'm just saying, they worked with what they had in the year 2000 and 2001. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it holds up somewhat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it feels a little bit like you're watching a video game. But you could, I'm not saying you're going to put it up against uh, an Avengers. Yeah. I think the reason that it does age as well as it does compared to a lot of other media from the time, I mean, look at any superhero movie before we had the Marvel Cinematic Universe and you will see some, some proper bad CGI from that from that era. Even just like, I think the... X-Men movie trilogy came out around this time mm-hmm. or like the Matrix and the, the CGI is is not great um, I'm th- gonna say I don't think CGI started getting good till around uh, 2002, 2003 when Scooby-Doo came out so <laughs> as we all know it's not the Lord of the Rings that is the benchmark for CGI <laughs> it, it is Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo. <laughs> I'm in. That movie was great. I support that. It support scared that. me to bits. But this is okay. I can talk about the Scooby Doo movie for hours because I had such a childhood thing about that movie. But I think the reason that the CGI holds up so well um, is because it's not pure CGI. It is an amalgamation of real shots just essentially being photoshopped into other scenarios mm-hmm. kind of like how in in episode one where they have the moment where or if it's episode one or episode two, two i think is the end of episode one where the planes from america or from england um the reason that it looks so as great as it does is because they found like the last four working planes on the planets of that model and mm-hmm actually take off and then they just like copy and pasted those four planes like 
they set up like 17 cameras to get every angle and then just use that mm-hmm. shot over and over and over again which works a lot better than if they were to like animate a plane in the sky yeah because i mean and then they uh they sort of have that scene at the end of episode one where like dick is sitting in the door and it's like partially like they had i think a fuselage that they were in so they have that scene Mm -hmm. kind of where he's sitting there but then it is on like a green screened in background Yeah. yeah um so, but anyway, our boys jump. They jump into <laughs> Holland, and they're in a field, and it's very sentimental, and Bull again comes in to help his guys. The, the scene is so funny, because I just, like, love watching everybody, like, get their stuff together and go. Like, Liebgott's little run is, like, so funny. <laughs> He's like, I must get to the forest. <laughs> I must go, I must go. Um, <laughs> My people need me. This is where we first sort of actually meet the character of Webster, because he has this little moment where he, like, dramatically takes the knife out of his boot and cuts off a, a scrap yeah, of his parachute. Which I've, which I've <laughs> never understood why he was like, I need to keep this part of my parachute. Like, you did you not see that Talbert kept his whole fucking thing from D-Day? Like, you could take more of it. <laughs> He's just like, I must have an Arnold Schwarzenegger moment before he was even born. Like, like I what's he gonna to like? What's moment. he gonna do? Like, like wrap it around his head like a headband? Like, because that's about as much as he could with that little scrap. Well, you know when you have a bad hair day and there's a war going on and you need to protect. <laughs> he has curly hair. What if it rains? Like, would you wear your not- helmet? You're in war. <laughs> we know that helmets can get lost. <laughs> Um, okay so like my weird like headcanon for that is something something watched Saving Private Ryan with like the tins of dirt that like the guy (laughs) keeps the tins of dirt of like all of the places that he has gone Mm. and Ian himself was like that's gonna be a Webster thing like I would love it if you just like told the camera guy hey get the shot of me yeah, and he was just like, guys, I have this thing, can, like, I'm just gonna run with it a little bit, just stay with me, and he, like, pulls the knife out, and cuts the parachute, and stuffs it in his jacket pocket, and they're like, was that the thing? He's like, get out of <laughs> I love the idea. And Tom Hanks is just Bailey. like, you know what, we're just... I love the idea of Aeon Bailey, Eon Bailey, I don't know how to pronounce his I name, know. the guy who plays Webster. I love <laughs> idea of him having these like alternative head cannons going on yeah, like, I'm, just gonna improv here, guys. I'm just gonna improv i love I'm him just... being like tom just like leaving him alone like i guess like i don't want him <laughs> talking to me <laughs> tom Hanks is like, let him do whatever what and then one of the editors bad? was like oh this is actually like this is kind of a good scene i kind of like this for this webster guy and tom hanks is like fucking christ like yeah it's yeah. fine leave it in <laughs> I'm gonna be honest, I think that a lot of what we see in Webster in this episode is to make us remember him when he returns in episode 8. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because we need to know who he is to understand how alienated he feels at that moment. So we get a lot of introductions to like who he is, the fact that he speaks German, the fact that he's kind of like known for going 
to Harvard and being a bit of a smartass, like that's kind of his character. Being an accidental smartass, I'm gonna say. He doesn't mm-hmm. set out to be insufferable, he just kind of is. Vincent Van Gogh was born in Noonan is literally... <laughs> he didn't even say Noonan, he said Noinan. But we're not even there yet. <laughs> I know, yeah, so, even- so they, they jump, Bull's got more moments with his guys, and then they leave, they walk through a field, <laughs> and then they're just like sitting in this like ravine and Hubler, the the little scoundrel found himself some alcohol yeah can we talk about the fact that Hubler just had like the time and was allowed to go AWOL for like a couple of minutes to go raid a random Dutch farm who does that there's Hubler. a war going on you're just Hubler. about to head into combat this is not the time to go steal some beer for your guys yeah it is <laughs> Right? It's always like Miller time. time for it. It's always drinking time. Um, Hubler said, it's Miller time. It's Miller time. Oh, I Miller. don't understand what that means. I'm just repeating what you said, hoping that it's going to make me sound cool. It's an American. Something, something, dear, something, something, but also James Miller, and now I'm really sad. Okay. Well, well yeah. why are you sad? Nothing has uh, <laughs> happened yet. I don't know what you mean. I don't but know. Anyway, are so they... listening to this podcast that haven't watched Band of Brothers? <laughs> Imagine this is the introduction that you get. <laughs> I want to take this amazing. moment to address the listener directly and say that if you have not watched these episodes of Band of Brothers, I feel very, very bad for you. Um... I promise that the show is better than these lunatics make it seem. We're just very, very engaged. 